0: Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. welcome to part three of the catechism oh I have been looking forward to this part of the catechism for so long this is the point where we get down to the nitty-gritty details of what it actually means to live a Christian life right what does it mean to to be a good Christian so in part one of the catechism we talked about the faith that we all share right what is this Christian faith and then in the second part we talked about how the grace of Christ's death and resurrection is communicated to us through the sacraments and now in this third part, we think about, okay, how do I respond to those things, right? How do I make use of the grace that God gives me in the sacraments? How do I live out my Christian faith? So in this next few episodes, we're going to do a sort of broad overview introduction to morality. This is how the catechism begins this section. So we're going to talk about things like morality, like what makes acts moral or immoral, sin, what is sin, when am I culpable for the sins that I commit, am I always responsible when I do the wrong thing, freedom, that's one of the topics we'll talk about today, what is it to be a free person and to do things freely, and what's the relationship between freedom and responsibility. So these are the kind of foundational ideas that sit underneath all of the church's teachings around morality and right and wrong. So after we've covered that, we'll then go into the Ten Commandments. And we'll unpack each of those in an episode. But before we get to a discussion of morality, it's really important that first we make sure that we've got the right set of lenses on, right, to, to approach these topics. Because often when we talk about morality, it's really easy to kind of get trapped in an attitude of like, here's what not to do, right? These are This is all the sins that you shouldn't commit. Here's how to make sure that you don't go to hell, Right. And that is the wrong way for us to look at it. The Ten Commandments and the church's teaching on morality aren't just a list of things not to do. They are a roadmap to holiness and to happiness. So the church isn't just telling us, hey, do this, otherwise you'll go to hell. The church is telling us, hey, you human being, you are wonderfully made and you have been called to great things. You have the capacity for greatness. So here's how to achieve it. Here's your roadmap to reach holiness. And this is how this section starts. It starts with a quote from St. Leo the Great, which is a kind of rallying cry for Christians. It says, Christian, recognize your dignity. Okay, so that's where we start. Recognize your dignity. It's like being gripped by the shoulders and shaken awake, right? Look up. You are made in the image and likeness of God and you are called to holiness. And what a terrible waste. What a tragedy if you don't achieve it or at least try to achieve it in this lifetime. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before where like you meet someone or you have a friend who has all of this incredible potential and you can see it in them, right? You can see their big heart or their skills or their talents. But this friend, it just spends all of their time like sitting on the couch or just kind of bumbling along, getting by. And it's so frustrating looking at them being like, you could be doing so much more. You are called to so much greater. And precisely because you love that person, you want to say to them, hey, this is what you could be doing. And that's exactly how God treats us. So the catechism begins by telling us recognize your dignity so what does that mean our dignity well as human beings we have this incredible capacity to know and understand and attain transcendent spiritual goods right we're not like all of the other animals right i'm not like all the other moms i'm a cool mom (laughs) we're not like the other animals we have this capacity to know love and imitate god other animals do not have that capacity So I remember once when my little sister was about two years old and I was in the kitchen and I could hear her in the living room and our dog had stepped on her toe and I could hear her following the dog around in the living room being like, Bridie, say sorry, say sorry, (laughs) Bridie. And I had to go in and be like, Ella, Bridie is not going to say sorry. And it's true, right? A dog will never say sorry. We would never like put a fox on trial because it killed a chicken. Like an elephant is never going to go to university and write a thesis, uh, you know, on some philosophical topic. Human beings are in so many ways utterly unique. It makes me think of one of my fave plays, Hamlet. There's this bit where Hamlet starts like going on about how amazing human beings are. And he says, what a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Oh, so beautiful and so so true that as human beings we are we're sort of sitting at the pinnacle with these incredible you know uh, capacities and just like with with everything else when we see a capacity in someone for greatness then we want them to achieve it and god has given us this capacity to to know love and imitate him and he wants us to fulfill it and it's so easy to kind of forget about this And to just think that our one job is just to kind of get to heaven in whatever state we kind of happen to be in. Sort of like, you know, when you get on a train and you know it's going somewhere and it's like, okay, I'm on the train now. As long as I don't get off the train, I will end up at my destination. And so in the meantime, during this train ride, all I have to do is kind of while away the time, just find something to do to occupy myself. So we take out our phone or a book or we listen to music. Sometimes we can treat life like that, right? We're like, well, I'm on the train. Like, I'm a Christian. baptized. I'm living, you know, basically a good life. I'm not committing any mortal sins. So as long as I just stay on the train until, you know, I die, then I'll be fine. And in the meantime, I'll just kind of hang around with my friends and do my job and kind of just find something to do until I die. But actually life is so much more than that. Think about the destination when you get on a train. Say you're catching a train to like Buckingham Palace, which I don't think is a thing you can do, but let's just say that you can. Say you're on a train to Buckingham Palace and you hop on at the station and you're all bedraggled and you've just come straight from work or uni and you're not wearing any makeup and your stuff's everywhere, right? You're going to use that trip to sort of tidy yourself up and make yourself presentable. So by the time you step off the train, you are ready for the destination that you're getting to. It makes me think of Harry Potter when they get on the Hogwarts Express at the start of every school year. And when they get on, they're all in their sort of like civilian clothes. And then there's always a point during the journey where they all start being like, okay, we've got to get our robes on. We've got to start preparing because by the time they get off the train, they've got to be in their robes. And it's exactly the same with us, right? Like by the time we get to heaven, we want to be in a state where we are actually presentable. So the catechism tells us that as Christians, we have a vocation, a calling to beatitude. And another word we can use for that is holiness or sanctity, right? We are called not just to be good Christians or mediocre Christians. We are called to be saints. And Jesus says this himself, right? He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But that sounds super daunting, right? Like, how do I become a saint? What do I do? I need some sort of roadmap. Well, obviously, we have the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are like the directions for how to get on the train and stay on the train. <laughs> Here's what to do if you don't want to hop off, right? But as well as that, we also have the Beatitudes, which makes sense, right? We're called to beatitude and the path to get there is the beatitudes. And it's actually kind of easy to forget about the beatitudes or at least to sort of think of them as almost like nice platitudes, like nice things that are nice that we should try to do and like whatever. It's not a big deal. Like, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, that's a really nice idea. And I'm going to be honest with you. I have definitely fallen into that way of thinking before, but I remember my dad saying to me once, he was like, if I only had three things to pray with for the rest of my life, it would would be the Our Father, the first letter to the Corinthians chapter 13, and the Beatitudes. And at the time, I was like, really? The Beatitudes? But actually, it makes so much sense. Like, the Our Father teaches us how to pray, 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us how to love, and the Beatitudes teach us how to live. And this is what the Catechism says as well. The Catechism places the Beatitudes front and center. In point 1716, the Catechism talks about how the Beatitudes are at the heart of Jesus preaching. They're like the, the kernel right at the center. This is everything kind of distilled and summarized in the Beatitudes. In point 1717, it says that they depict the countenance of Jesus Christ and portray his charity. They express the vocation of the faithful. So the Beatitudes show us not only what Jesus is like, but also what we should be trying to be like. <laughs> And we don't have time today to go through every single one of the Beatitudes, but it's really worth taking them to prayer and praying about them and being like, okay, how do I live each of these things? What do each of these things mean? What do they look like in my own life? There's a book by Jacques Philippe called The Eight Doors of the Kingdom, and it's a series of meditations on the Beatitudes. I really recommend reading that or or something else that kind of helps you to meditate on the Beatitudes. But one thing that's worth saying here is that The Beatitudes are not just a set of instructions, they also show us the destination, right? The the end point, the consequences of being holy, and that is that we will inherit the earth, right? The kingdom of heaven will be ours. The end point of the Beatitudes is heaven and eternal happiness. And if we think about it, the Beatitudes are actually pretty radical. Like they tell us that if we are poor in spirit, if we are merciful and meek and we suffer, right, then we will be happy. And this is literally the opposite of what everything seems to be telling us in this kind of modern world, right? If we look at, you know, advertising and social media, we're constantly being told happy are the rich, happy are the famous, happy are the people who never suffer. And then you look at like all of the rich and famous people in the world, and they're like six divorces and the dead pain behind their eyes, and you're like, okay, I don't think this is actually the thing that's going to make me happy. And so the beatitudes are a great thing for us to return to consistently as a kind of reality check to be like, no, th- these deeper spiritual things are the things that are going to ultimately satisfy me. Holiness is where I will find happiness. Makes me think of um, there's this quote apparently Saint Jose Maria used to say that if you want to be happy, be holy. If you want to be be very happy, be very holy. If you want to be extremely happy, be extremely holy. I love that. Although, having said that, I mean, yes, of course, we have to do good if we want to be happy. But at the same time, if we just slavishly do good, that's not necessarily going to make us happy. So I don't know if you've ever encountered this before. If you meet someone who is just always doing the right thing, always following the rules, but not because they want to, but because they feel scared or they feel obliged or they're really sort of Spartan and moralistic. And you look at that person and you're like, man, you seem miserable. And it's the same with us, right? Yes, we have to do good in order to be happy, but doing good ultimately means nothing if we're not doing it freely. So this is where we come to something that goes hand in hand with this call to holiness, and that is freedom. Freedom is so important. There is honestly no point in us doing the right thing unless we are doing the right thing freely. But what, what do we mean when we say freedom? What is freedom? Freedom. And that might seem like kind of an obvious question, like, well, freedom is when no one is forcing you to do something and you can do it freely. (laughs) So the catechism says in point 1731 that freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that. In other words, freedom is the power to make deliberate choices. And this is a really important thing, right? Because we are the only, you know, material created beings on earth who have this freedom. So the Catechism goes on to say that freedom characterizes properly human acts. We are our most human when we are acting freely. Side note, this is actually why the church teaches that getting drunk or taking drugs is such a serious sin because it it kind of blots out our humanity, right? It deprives us of our capacity to act freely. And that is what makes us human. That's what characterizes us as human beings and not animals. So freedom is this power to make deliberate choices. But there is more to it than that because our contemporary world kind of just focuses on on that aspect of freedom, right? That it's all about me being able to do what I want to do. Fulton Sheen talks about this as a kind of focus on the freedom from stuff. So freedom from constraint, freedom from the reactions of other people or the judgments of other people, etc. And of course. Freedom from constraint is an important thing, but it's only one half of the equation. Point 1731 of the Catechism goes on to say that freedom is the power to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. So responsibility is the other half of the equation of freedom, and it is the half that we often like to kind of conveniently forget about or ignore, but it is so important. And if we forget about it, then what we end up with is a kind of radical idea of individualism or autonomy, where it's all about my right to make my own decisions without taking into account the way that those decisions affect other people. But when we think about it, it's kind of obvious that no action occurs in a vacuum, right? It it always occurs in a context. So when I make a choice, that affects me and it also affects the world around me and the people around me. In other words, there are consequences when I make decisions. And of course, if I'm not free when I make that choice, then I can't be held accountable for the consequences. That's why when a dog does something wrong, we'll say, you know, oh, don't get mad at the dog. It doesn't know any better or it can't help itself. And that's a completely reasonable thing to say about a dog. But human beings have the capacity to know better and to help ourselves. So that's why when I decide freely to do something and that thing is wrong or there are negative consequences, I am responsible for those consequences. So the Catechism says this in point 1734, it says freedom makes man responsible for his acts to the extent that they are voluntary. And that's a really important point to make, right? That we're not always free when we make decisions, even though we have that inherent capacity, sometimes that capacity to act freely is inhibited. So the Catechism goes on to say in point 1735, that responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified in certain cases. And it, and it lists a few examples, first of all, ignorance. Okay. So you, you genuinely don't know any better. At the same time, there is such a thing as what we call culpable ignorance. So when you you technically don't know that something is wrong, but you definitely could have known. And I come across this all the time in teaching with university students, especially students who have just come out of high school and they're sort of a, a bit more used to being kind of spoon fed a bit. And they'll come to the tutor and be like, you know, I, I didn't know, like I didn't know that the assessment was on that day or that there was an exam or that I was being marked on that. And the tutor has to kind of say to them, well, you know, I mean, that that sucks and I sympathize, but at the same time, you actually, you could have known. You had all the means to know, like you were sent a a course outline and an assessment task with all the details. The fact that you didn't know is more to do with the fact that you never actually tried to find out. And sometimes we can be a little bit like that with morality. We can be like, "Hmm, I have a feeling that this particular thing might be wrong, but I'm just going to not check. (laughs) I'm just going to put that in the back of my mind and pretend that thought never popped into my head and just... Claim ignorance. Well, okay, in that situation, that's what we call culpable ignorance. But if you genuinely don't know that something is wrong, then okay, you can't be held responsible for it. Another situation in which your responsibility can be diminished is in a case of inadvertence. So it's basically an accident. So it's the difference between accidentally knocking a vase off a shelf and deliberately picking up a vase and smashing it on the ground because you're angry, right? In one of those situations, you have freely made a choice and you are responsible for it. And then the other Situation, it was an accident, so you're not fully responsible. And then a third situation in which our responsibility is diminished is in situations of duress or fear. So if someone is forcing you to do something, or you're so afraid that you're not thinking straight. So my aunt tells this story of a time when she was like eight months pregnant, right? Like visibly pregnant, about to give birth. And she was swimming in the ocean with her friend. And suddenly the shark alarm went off. So there was like announcements going off saying, get like get out of the water, there's a shark in the water. And the lifeguard boat came speeding over to collect them. And the two women are like, you know, swimming towards the boat and they get there. And my auntie starts climbing into the boat. And her friend is so completely panicked and so afraid that she pushes her heavily pregnant friend out of the way and clambers onto the boat first herself. And when they got back to shore, her friend was like, I cannot believe I did that. What the heck? That was awful. I'm so sorry. But it was because she was so afraid that she wasn't fully in control of her actions. Okay, and then the fourth example that the catechism offers is of situations of habit or inordinate attachment. And I think we would all know what this one feels like, right? When you have developed a bad habit or you are super attached to something and you really do feel enslaved to that thing. It makes me think of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He's so inordinately attached to the one ring that he's like a slave to it. He's like he's got blinkers on. He literally like can't make any choices outside of this thing that he's obsessed with. And it's interesting when you look at the way that Frodo and Sam treat Gollum it's they're not it's like they're not even blaming him for the way that he's behaving that I mean they're upset with him when he does the wrong thing but also there's just this kind of pity and sadness for him because they can see that he's no longer even responsible for for his actions when it comes to the ring he's just completely under its spell now this kind of desire or inordinate attachment to material things can so often inhibit our own capacity to do the right thing and that's because we are all affected by original sin right we all have what we call concupiscence this kind of animal desire that often draws us towards things that are bad for us and actually this is why the original sin of adam and eve was so bad because adam and eve weren't affected by concupiscence right they had the preternatural and supernatural gifts they were radically completely free which means that they were radically, completely responsible for the sin that they committed. Now, we are also responsible for the sins that we commit, but we are also affected by original sin. And that's why we need the grace of the sacraments, right, to help us to do the right thing. Okay, so there are situations in which our freedom is diminished, and therefore we are not fully responsible for our actions. But in general, insofar as we are free, we are also responsible, and we have a responsibility to do the right thing. Thing. This is how Pope John Paul II puts it. He has this famous quote where he says, freedom consists not in doing what we like but in having the right to do what we ought. And in some ways, that can seem like a kind of paradox or a contradiction, right? Like, surely that's quite restrictive to say that freedom is about doing what we ought. In other words, following the rules. Isn't following the rules the opposite of being free? Well, let's think of it like this. When you really want to get good at something the more you learn and adhere to the rules of that thing, the more free you are to do it. So, for example, when I first started university, I really wanted to learn how to speak French. So I took a few classes and then I eventually went to France and I spent a few months living there. Now, when I first arrived in Paris, my knowledge of the rules of French was shaky at best. I mean, i had been studying it for a few years, but anyone who has studied a language at school or university will know that that means diddly squat. So I got to Paris. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to speak French. And it was really, really inhibiting. I didn't feel free. In fact, I spent the first couple of weeks in Paris, like hiding in my apartment because I felt like every time I left and tried to talk to people, they would just stare at me blankly or like respond in broken English and it would be really embarrassing. Like one time I went to a Macca's and I tried to order a coffee and they gave me a giant Big Mac meal and no coffee. And I was like, how do I get a basic coffee order wrong? So anyway, I felt really, really inhibited for the first couple of weeks. And then of course, over time, you you start to kind of warm up and get into a rhythm with speaking French. And by the end, I felt quite confident and I felt so much more free, right? In fact, in the final couple of weeks of my stay, one of my friends came to visit me and she stayed with me for a couple of days. And you should have seen us. We were like strutting down the streets of Paris to like rock up at a cafe, um, ordering coffee and chatting to the waiter. And I felt so much more kind of free, right? And confident now that I understood and could adhere to the rules of speaking French. And the same thing applies to the moral law, right? The more we kind of follow the rules of what is good, the more we will actually become free to do and to experience the good. So the Catechism puts it like this in point 1733, it says, The more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. And okay, if you're someone who struggles to see the connection between doing good and freedom, it might be easier to approach it from the angle of doing the wrong thing and enslavement. So have you ever been in a situation where you're consistently doing something that you know is wrong or bad for you? Maybe it's not even like a serious thing, but it's just something small that you know isn't good. So maybe you're like checking Instagram every two seconds or you're constantly snacking on chocolate when you're bored and you start to get that kind of like sick tired, trapped feeling every time you do that thing. You're like staring at your phone being like, I don't even want to look at Instagram. Like I I don't care what is happening on social media. I just feel like I'm in a rut that I can't get out of. And then the day comes where you wake up and you get out of bed and you think, you know what? No, no more of this. I don't want to check social media every two seconds. So you log out of Instagram on your phone and you turn your phone off and you sit down and do your work. And it feels, it's like the shackles fall off you. You're like, Freedom! It's the best feeling, right? The more that we do the things that are good and good for us and for others, the more free we become and the more in control we are and the more happy we are. And in fact, Fulton Sheen says that perfect freedom leaves us with nothing left to choose. Talk about a paradox. That's like the ultimate paradox. Perfect freedom leaves us with nothing left to choose. So he uses the example of a married couple, right? He's like, when you meet that person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, you're like, I I don't want to have any other choices of other people. Like, I freely make the decision to unite myself to you and only you. And this experience is amplified times a gazillion when it comes to God, because God is the ultimate good, his goodness itself. And so when we choose him, there is literally nothing outside of him and his will that we could possibly want because he is goodness itself. Now, the Catechism in point 1738 says that every human person Has the natural right to be recognized as a free and responsible being. The right to exercise freedom, especially in moral and religious matters, is an inalienable requirement of the dignity of the human person. So remember, right at the beginning of the episode, we said that freedom characterizes properly human acts. So that's why it's so important that we respect our own freedom and the freedom of other people. Because in doing so, we show respect for their human dignity. However... The Catechism then goes on to say in point 1740 that the exercise of freedom does not imply a right to say or do everything. In other words, our freedom is not unlimited. Okay, so how do we reconcile these two things? That on the one hand, I have the right to act with freedom, especially in moral and religious matters, and on the other hand, my freedom is not unlimited and there are boundaries to my freedom. Well, here we can return to this idea that freedom is tied up with responsibility and should ultimately be oriented towards the good. So yes, I am free to make moral decisions, But I am also responsible for those moral decisions. So I might decide that it is completely fine for me to drive my car on the wrong side of the road. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If I then run into someone, I am responsible for that choice. And what that means is that there are consequences that I will experience. If I run into someone with my car because I'm driving on the wrong side of the road, I am going to at best get fined and at worst go to jail. And that is completely fair enough because that is the consequence of my free choice. As well as that, my free choices should always be oriented towards the moral good. So, for example, I have the right to freely express my personal opinion when it comes to moral and religious matters, right? However, that doesn't mean that I get to say whatever I want in whatever way I want, right? I still have a duty to speak charitably and kindly when I express my opinion. Now, this is kind of complicated by the fact that in our contemporary world, we tend to kind of confuse the difference between the polite and clear expression of a personal moral opinion and, you know, an actual hateful or cruel expression of an opinion. The former is fine. The latter is not fine. (laughs) So this is what the church means when she says that human beings have a right to freedom, but that freedom is not unlimited. Freedom does not mean the right to do whatever we want, even if it is evil with no consequences. So here we can return to the quote from Pope St. John Paul II, that freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. (sighs) Okay, well, that's all we've got time for today on the topic of freedom and the call to holiness. I don't know about you, but this is a topic that I'm just going to keep thinking about like till kingdom come, because it is such an incredible mystery and it's full of so many paradoxes. I feel like the mystery of freedom is summarized so well in Galatians 5.13. It says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another that that is just an insane i like that i recommend everyone just take that verse to prayer and and just pray about it because that is an insane idea that it is through enslaving ourselves to one another through love that we become free ah oh, freedom what an incredible mystery okay well in the next episode we're going to talk about morality and conscience i cannot wait for that one in the meantime have a fantastic fortnight thanks for sticking with me and i will talk to you soon bye